0: Going to, Mr. L. Brown, who is going to speak to us on Miles Aircraft. Mr. Brown has been with the Miles firm from very near the beginning until the firm changed its name. And the Miles aircraft were no more for a while anyway. Since then he's been doing something else not directly connected with aeronautics. Well, he has some slides to show you. He can talk to you for as long as you want to listen to him. And he'll be very pleased to have questions afterwards. I'll call now without further ado and ask Mr. D. L. Brown to talk to us about Miles Eckert. Uh, first, I'd like to say uh, how awfully
1: glad I am to see so many old friends here. Some of you I've known for a few years, some of you I've known for many years, and it really is a joy... Also terrifying to have to talk uh, in front of a crowd of people who know me as well as some of you do. Well now, the story I'm going to tell you, of course, some of you who are here know the story much better than I do. But anyway, some of you don't, so those who (coughs) do know the story better than I do um, will have to put up with hearing what they already know. Um, It's the story of a couple of young men who started away at an early age very early age with the idea of making their career in the aircraft industry they had no knowledge no money no experience they just had enthusiasm and the story which I am now going to tell you, just is an illustration of what can be done, provided you've got enthusiasm, it's worth more than knowledge, money or anything else. And it's going to be a rather scrappy and incomplete sort of story, because if I told you the whole story, not that all of it is publishable, but if I told you even all that is publishable, you would be here at least until midnight. Well, you wouldn't. You'd no doubt have melted away before then. But I should be here still speaking until midnight in an empty room. So you have to forgive me if this story is not complete and is rather bitty. Well, now, uh, the elder of the two brothers, F.G. Miles uh suddenly made up his mind, aircraft was going to be his career. And so, with typical impetuosity, he was a very impetuous young man, he still is. Uh, he just thought, right, get down to work, draw an aeroplane, build it. He quite oblivious the fact he didn't know the first thing about aeroplanes, so he got down to work and threw an aeroplane, and gathered his brothers and various friends in, and they started to build it there and then. And the first slide will show that aeroplane. It was never finished, it never flew, it probably wouldn't have flown. But there is uh, a picture taken roughly 40 years ago of the that first aeroplane. Anyway, I'm only just showing that because that was the start of the story. Uh, that airplane was never completed, and I say probably it's just as well, because by that time, Miles had come to the realization that he didn't know anything about the job. he probably only killed himself trying to fly a thing, even mm-hmm. assuming he did fly. And so he thought it was better to go about the job a different way and gain a bit of experience. And at that juncture, he had a stroke of luck in which he heard about a veteran pilot who had been flying right since the very earliest days of flying, the days of the belliers and farmons, a man called Pashley, who had flown throughout the 1418 war, who had run a school of flying ashore before the 1418 war, along with his brother, who was killed in the war, and this little man had, after the war, retired and gone into his father's business. His father, I believe, was a bookie. Well, Miles, somehow, after heard of Pashley, and better still, he heard that Pashley had got an aeroplane stored away in a hangar at Hendon, which was no longer being used, the aeroplane. So Miles dashed off to see Pashley, uh, turned on the sales talk, and nobody to this day can do sales talk better than FG Miles can, and told Pashley, look here, I'm giving you the opportunity of being in right on the ground floor Something's going to be really big. I'm going to finish up as one of the biggest aircraft instructors in the country, as it happens just at the moment. I haven't got anything in the nature of firm or any money, but I gather you've got an airplane. Now, I suggest we go into partnership. You come into partnership with me. You put your contribution to the firm. Will be your airplane. You will teach me to fly. We shall operate this airplane. We shall operate a club and a joyriding concern, and that will just be the foundation for something that will one day develop into something very really big. Well, uh, little Tashri uh, fell for it, agreed to do that, and put his airplane into um, the business. And they started off on that basis, which is one airplane and one or two pupils. Miles was the first pupil, and as I told you, he was always inclined to be impetuous, and still is. And he very soon reached a stage where he felt that he was ready to go solo. And he told his instructor so. Pashto said, I am sorry, I don't think you are yet. So Miles, with characteristic impetuosity, went out to the aerodrome the next morning, got the airplane out by himself, started off, and went solo. And when his instructor arrived, here was Miles flying around in the air. The instructor, needed to say, took a pretty dim view of this. However, Miles brushed that aside, said, that's all right. I tell you, I said, he goes, so oh, I proved it now. Now, look, we've got six pupils, as from tomorrow. You take three, I take three. And the following day, he started giving instruction. Uh, I was mean, mentioning all this, not so much for the sake of making it an amusing story, but to show you the sort of things you could do and get away with in those days. I mean, that sort of thing would be unthinkable nowadays. And um, anyway, there was this old which was one of the genuine old 504Ks, with a rotary engine, and uh, we started a club and a joyriding concern, uh, alternatively, in other words, you were giving a pupil instruction, and then perhaps uh, a customer in the form of a 5 bob joyride would appear on the horizon, immediately instruction was stopped, the pupil was hoiked out, the uh, joyride was put in, you took him, and then he went on and carried on the instruction, we ran in that sort of way for some years. And that aeroplane, in due course, is replaced by another one, which you will now see. Uh, and there is the replacement of the original aeroplane. Um, here's a little Fashley in the, um, the front cockpit. That is Miles, and that's one of the other pupils. And in our audience tonight, a very old school friend of mine, Mr. Graham Head, who has... T- been many, many, many dozens of uh, hours in that aeroplane, originally, like myself, just swinging the propeller and helping people in and out and taking their five bobs, but later, as pilot and uh, as an instructor. And so it's so nice to see him here tonight, because these pictures, in fact, I think it's highly probable that he took that photograph.
0: Uh, well now, we
1: ran this combined sort of tub joyriding thing for some years and gained invaluable experience. The real way to learn any job is to do it. And when you're working literally on a shoestring and your one aeroplane is your only means of support and the moment, uh, it's out of action, your business comes to a standstill, as you can imagine, uh, maintenance is cut to a bare minimum. You only do anything to the other thing, if something goes wrong. Otherwise, you're, it's having to earn its bread and butter. Well, now, in connection with uh, this joyriding business, you would go out and pick a nice field in the country and plonk down by the side of a main road and stick up boards and things showing 5 volt flights. And customers would sometimes come along. And I could tell you a long story if only we had time of some of the amusing comments the customers make. There isn't time to go into that. But uh, in order to uh, attract uh, more customers, the thing to do is to do something which looks dangerous, because the average human being is quite incredibly bloodthirsty, and if you do something which looks as if it's going to result in an accident, um, well, the crowds of people will come along, you get all the more joy-riding. And the next picture... Shows uh, one of the means we adopted. This. this is the boy who you saw in the last picture swinging the propeller. This was a lady called Mason, and um, we used to send him out along the wing. It was all perfectly safe, actually. You know, I mean, there were so many stuts and wires to hang on to, you couldn't very well uh, fall off. And the, and the cruising speed was only 55 miles an hour (mph), note not knots in those days. Um, but on the other hand, it was astonishing how it sent up our, um, the seats. People fairly flocked along in the hope for. Perhaps I'm trying to the hope of seeing an accident, but nevertheless you can't get away from the fact that people do flock along if anything spectacular is being done. That, by the way, is quite a genuine photograph. You might think it was a fake. I mean there's nothing to prevent anybody standing on the wing or an other thing on the ground, you know, taking a photograph. I did take it myself, and you can see to uh, indicate its genuineness the chapel advancing college. Yes, right. so that was quite genuinely taken in the air and therefore it was a very, very useful sales gimmick. Well now I mentioned just now that because we only had this one, rather the old the other thing, uh, which was our only means of support and means of gaining a livelihood and gaining experience, but uh, maintenance was cut to the barest minimum and things were usually only done to it when anything went wrong and uh, here is an example. Um That was our original airplane, the first airplane, TU, and that was due to uh, an engine cut on takeoff. But even though this all looks rather disastrous, but when you have got real enthusiasm, and the determination to make a thing go. Even when a thing like that happens, it's surprising how quickly you can sort of get it repaired and in the air again. It was a question of necessity. Until we could get it in the air again, I mean, activity ceased. So even though a thing like that looks rather disastrous, first of all, bearing in mind a very low speed at which these other things used to touch down, so while that looks a bit dramatic in point of fact, you're only going very slowly when you hit the deck, And uh, and I just wanted to uh, mention it as an illustration of my saying that uh, maintenance was cut to a minimum. Uh, And similarly, again, in those days you could do things and get away with them... Um, which would be quite unthinkable and impossible on present-day regime, probably just as well. For instance, I think that most of us could claim, I'm sure uh, Graham here could, just as I could, my first fair-paying passenger I ever carried. I hadn't got a commercial pilot's license, I'd never had one. The aeroplane hadn't got a CLA, and we weren't operating from a field license to an airfield. But the passengers enjoyed their fight just as much. Um, so it's a uh, wrong example, I think, of ignorance being British.
0: Well, anyway, leaving that, I've rather
1: dwelt on that particular aspect because um, this was the foundation of all that came later that we must we must press on. Um, we got to the stage of beginning to think that we could seriously think about designing and building an airplane, and for our first attempt... Um, well, first of all, we had to build a workshop. We just had a rather crappy old hangar, and we built an extension on the back of it for a workshop to build an aeroplane in. And for our first attempt at producing an aeroplane of our own, I, we did something which I think was wise. We took an existing design and modified it, uh, and modernized it, if one can use that expression. The design was an Avro aeroplane, the Avro 534, called the Avro Baby, which was a little single-seat aerobatic biplane, uh, we're a 35 horsepower, uh, liquid cooled engine, and we rebuilt it uh, with, uh, first of all, 75 horsepower ABC Hornet, and later an 85 horsepower Armstrong Silly Genet engine, which involves quite a lot of stiffening the structure. We designed a completely new tail unit and a completely new undercarriage, and, um the, uh, this slide shows that aeroplane being built in the workshop, that FG. FG Miles there. That's myself. Chap with the two oil spots on the back of his coat is George Miles. Um uh, here's little Pashti, who incidentally is still flying at Shoreham to this day. He's 74 years of age. So it shows that there is, uh, Summers has still got a few years to go. I don't think you, Graham, are in the picture, in that particular picture, are you? There's old Harry Howard Carpenter. But anyway, that is how we, that was, uh, the fuselage, the start of our firstborn, which we call the Marthit, which was just this redesigned Evo um, baby And the finished job is there, that is the Marthet. Uh This particular one was um, built for the Marquis of Clydesdale, who um, was the first man to fly over Everest, admittedly not in that era, I And who is now, what is he now? He's the Duke of Hamilton, isn't he? Well, that was our firstborn. Uh, The next airplane was another very small single-seat aerobatic airplane called the SATA, which uh, Miles designed and which was built by a firm called Parnells down in Gloucestershire. That came to a rather amusing end. It was put into a flying circus. You probably know that at that time there were various circuses, the most well-known being operated by Sir Alan Cobham. There was another one operated by a lady called Mrs. Victor Bruce. And this was one of the airplanes in the circus. And Mrs. Victor Bruce uh, was having a forced landing on it one day and she was gliding into what appeared to be a perfectly nice field. And suddenly at the last minute to half Horror! she noticed an enormous crop of uh, telegraph wires which she had failed to see. And as this was a dead stick landing, there was nothing much she could do about it. So she thought, oh, well, it's going to be just too bad for all the people who are on the telephone. We should just go straight through ease, but as this was a very small and light aeroplane, this was a rather formidable nest of wires, she didn't go straight through them, they just gave like that, and then catapulted her off backwards. I've never, never, she wasn't hurt, and it was the end of the poor little satyr, but I've never seen an aeroplane having landed backwards before. It was quite an amusing whole incident. Well, anyway, from there... As you see, we're still in the days of the old, aerodynamically dirty and inefficient biplane, and we would now reached a stage where Miles wanted to uh, tie and have a serious shot at capturing the light aeroplane market, and he felt that the best way to do this was to... Um, go for something with a lot higher performance than the contemporary biplanes of that day, to have them moth, the Avroavian, Western Widgeon, Blackburn, Bluebird, and so on. And so he's uh, set about designing a simple, rugged, clean, low-wing monoplane, um, and there it is. And that was built by a firm called Phillips and Paris at the Reading, who are operating a club, and uh, repair organization, but who'd never gone in for aircraft manufacture. Well, Miles, having got out the design for this, of course, he had neither the facilities nor the money to build it, he went along and saw Phillips and Paris, turned on the sales talk and said, look, here, here is a chance of being in on the beginning of something really big. This is where you start being aircraft manufacturers. You build this airplane, you finance the thing, it's my design, and we'll go 50-50. And so there was the original Miles Hawk which, in prototype form, sold for £395, which were, uh, was a lot cheaper than the moth. The moth at that time, if I remember right, was selling for around about 600 That very cheap price was... Um, Brought uh, made possible by a stroke of luck in that there were a number of Silas uh, 3A engines which had been ordered by a customer who had then gone bankrupt and had, had been unable to take delivery. And um, Silas's had a batch of about 50 engines which they were only too glad to sell at any price they could get for them. So Miles bought this batch of engines, or Arthur in Paris did, and that's what sort of enabled that airplane uh, to be, uh, produced initially for 395 and later for 450, but the other thing about the airplane was, of course, it had a 50% higher performance than the contemporary biplanes, and so this really was the start of things really beginning to move. As is in, almost inevitable, prices started to rise, while the initial price of so that was 395, it very soon rose to 450. But, uh, it subsequently went into production in a higher powered make with the Gypsy Major engine, and that gave it a much higher performance still, and that sold for 750. And the Hawk Major, this was just the Hawk, the Hawk Major, which was the same aeroplane fitted with a gypsy major engine and a spatted undercarriage. The Hawk Major, at 750, was that I think I'm right in claiming the first aeroplane to go into production with split flaps. I'm not claiming that Miles invented a flap, but I think I'm right in saying that he was the first one to apply them to a production aeroplane. And the Hawk Major, which subsequently developed into the RAF train of the Magister, were all derived from that basic airplane well so far so good things were really beginning to move uh, I'm having to leave ours and I shall all the way through destroy a whole lot of intermediate types but at that time it seemed to be a good thing now to see if we could um, work up uh, a friendly relationship with RAE um, I'm particularly glad that another friend of mine I see in the audience tonight is from RAE because we did have over the years a very happy relationship indeed with RAE and how we brought this about was going to them and saying look here you chaps are very keen on building wind tunnel models which uh, cost quite a lot of money take quite a long time when you've gone through all the tests you're never quite sure whether to believe the results or not but we are specialists in building one-off prototypes and we can build a full scale aeroplane just as quickly as you can build a wind tunnel model and you can get full scale results and the RAE uh, fortunately fell for that and they sponsored quite a lot of research work which they gave to us in the way of various high-lift devices. Um, This was, again, a standard light that we built, and the idea was to have full-span uh, very large cord flaps as you can see the flaps are so, so large cord that if you had them right down like that you had to have the tail skid up on the trestle because if you had the tail skid on the ground the flaps would touch the ground so you always have to remember to raise the flaps before landing but um, we did do quite a lot of um, uh, work of that nature, there are the same flaps again. Well now if you are going to have full, uh, full span flaps you've got to have some means of having a control and therefore, we put forward a suggestion for having devices known as spoilers uh, to be used on airplanes which had full span flaps. And uh, there are the spoilers mounted uh, at about the quarter chord line, uh, the idea being to reduce the lift on a given wing, in other words, to give you lateral control, same as ailerons. Actually, they did their job so well, uh, they did it positively dramatically. Uh, the test pilot, when he did the first take-off on this airplane, um, fitted with spoilers, uh, he did a perfectly normal take-off, but the moment he was off the ground, he found that if you moved a stick an eighth of an inch either way, you got about 45 degrees back, and <laughs> you had to practically keep the stick rigid in the middle, most violent lateral oscillations, the other thing going like that. He
0: desperately trying to
1: keep it on an even keel. And uh Anyway, he noticed that when he was immediately off the ground. It was too late to stop then. The far hedge was coming up so he decided to throttle back and land in the, end of the next field. So he hastily throttle back, shot across the field by uh, the hedge. By that time he was going so fast he then found that he was going too fast to pull up in the next field. So he hurriedly opened the throttle again, hopped the next hedge, still doing these violent oscillations. Anyway, to cut a long story short, he finished up uh, rather white-faced and pale about the gills about six fields further on. But... Um, one couldn't say that the um, spoilers didn't do their job. This was another research job we did at the behest of RAE. At that time, uh, supermarines put up a design for a uh, naval aircraft with a very complicated system of slats and flaps. It had full-span leading-edge uh, slats. It had uh, full-span flaps with... In, uh, double-slotted flaps, incidentally, with inset-slotted ailerons, And um, this was for service aircraft, and the RAE very wisely said, well, look, here, before we go ahead with what is going to be quite an expensive job, let's try it out on a small scale on a light aeroplane. So they got us to build that wing onto an, one of our existing aeroplanes to try it out before um, uh, launching on the expensive service aeroplane. And we did that, and then again, it was a wise decision because while it achieved a very high value of CL max, something of the order of three and a half, but it was almost uncontrollable that when you had your maximum lift. And the result of the experience going with that fairly cheap light airplane was that the full-scale job was never built because it wouldn't have had a sufficiently adequate degree of control to... Um, Enable it to be usefully operated from an aircraft carrier. Let me just show you those to show you just a few examples. There were a whole lot more. We built another airplane with interchangeable wings with various aspect ratios and, and also various thickness chord ratios. I just wanted to give you an idea of some of the sort of chimp, uh, cheap, simple uh, one-off search jobs which we did. Uh, RAE. It was a very worthwhile operation. It enabled us in our early struggling days to get going and it also uh, did do a useful job of work for RAE but a comparatively modest figure uh, modest cost. Well, now quite apart from our um, uh, heavy relationship with RAE we also wanted purely for publicity purposes to uh, try and make a name in the field of racing. We'd always very much had an eye on the King's Cup And, um, in 1934, we entered the King's Cup, the, we entered the prototype Hawk Major and got second place. And in 1935, we thought, let's really make a serious attempt, uh, to see if we can win the race because it would be a terrific feather in our cap we as a new and struggling firm and so we raked together practically every aeroplane we'd ever built or could lay our hands on and entered the of race and there was our entry for the 1935 King in and endeavour to make sure of it well that policy paid off because we got first, second, third, fifth and sixth places <laughs> and so um, uh Uh, And uh, we always kept up this uh, um, effort in the field, of sporting, flying. Um, uh, Just digressing for a moment, from 1934, when we first entered and got second place, up till last year, the King's Cup race was held 21 times. Now, in those 21 times, uh, our aircraft got first place six times, second place 11 times, and third place eight times. And moreover, we never failed to get less than fourth place. And only twice in those 21 races did we fail to be among the first three. And on three occasions, 1935, which is what that picture is, 1954, 1956, on three occasions, our aircraft came in first, second, and third. And that is something which was, forgive us for our blatant line shooting, this is something which was never achieved by any other firm to this day. Another aeroplane we built specifically for the King's Cup was uh, this, which was a variant of the old Hawk I showed you just now, but this was a Hawk reduced to a single-seater and fitted with a gypsy six-engine, and that particular aeroplane is raced in the King's Cup right up to the present day. It was raced raced in this year's King's Cup and last year and the year before. Although we built that aeroplane in 1935, it is still racing in the King's Cup 30 years later. And in point of fact, this year it was the scratch aeroplane. It didn't win because it was handicapped out of it, but it it was the fastest aeroplane in the race even though it is 30 years old. Well anyway, now leaving that particular aspect and jumping again, sorry for these jumps from one aspect to another, uh, we had got to the stage where we were becoming more ambitious and beginning to think, quite wrongly, that we knew something about aeroplane design. And we thought, now is the time we've never built a twin, have we? Let's have a go at the twin. Uh, all this was wild optimism, because, uh, quite honestly, at that stage of the game, our knowledge was deadly, deadly rudimentary. But anyway, we decided to go ahead, and uh, there is our first twin, an have thing called the Peregrine. Uh It was financed by our good friends at RAE for... Um, research on the control of the boundary there by suction research, which is still carried on to this day. But this, again, was way back in 1936. When the time came to fly the first prototype of that airplane, uh, we did, in a moment of honesty, realize we didn't know awfully little about aircraft. Uh, we weren't at all sure whether, whether the CG was in the right place where it ought to be, and we weren't at all sure in our own minds back where the CG should be. So to get over there, to have some form of ready adjustment, we took a youngster who was working in the drawing office. We got beyond the two men and the boys stage now. We were now about 50 strong in the firm. We took a youngster from the drawing office and said, look, you've been concerned with the drawings this other thing, haven't you? Would you like to have the honor of, um, of actually flying as a passenger on the?" First flight, and he'd poor sap jumped at the chance. And said, "Would I not?" And we said, "Well, look here. What we want you to do is, there isn't any seat in the cabin for you. But you, you just stand right in the middle of the cabin and keep your eye fixed on the pilot. And if he beckons to you, you run forward up into the cockpit. And if he goes like that, to you you run down to the back." So he, uh, he said, "Right, yo fair enough." Right? So. All set for the take-off. Uh, George Miles uh, stationed himself at the wheel of what we were pleased to call the fire engine. It was a, it was a Ford van with one fire extinguisher in the back. Uh, I positioned myself at the wheel of what we were pleased to call the ambulance, which was another Ford van with a blanket in it. Um, and we had the... Uh, engines already running and ready for waiting for the t- takeoff of this airplane which were the pilot was Charles Pies of St. Pies and rather to our astonishment we saw the airplane leave the ground after a very short run and start climbing at a fantastic angle straight off the deck at about that angle and we thought well what a clot fence!" doing your first takeoff on an unknown airplane and climbing it at about five knots above the straw. of course we weren't to know at the time we only learnt that later the poor Charles was pushing all his might on the control column, the boy was crouched up and right up in the nose, beyond the windscreen, climbed under the dashboard and huddled up in the nose. And he was <laughs> 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 but uh, we only learned that later. We were just sorting, of what an ass to take off like that? Well, uh, I mentioned that airplane was financed by uh, RAE for Barber Air Suction Control, and um, there is the wing of it. You see these ducts along it, the top surface of the wing was covered with a sort of porous material, rather like the sort of thing you use in the front of a meat-safe, and these ducts were connected up to a centrifugal fan uh, driven by a a ten-horse Ford car engine mounted in the cabin. And quite a lot of useful information was uh, gathered from that airplane. And it's rather interesting that this particular line of research is still, as you, no doubt all of you know, being pursued to this day. Well, anyway, having now got to the extent of progressing beyond single-engine aeroplanes, we've now done our first twin. Naturally, the next logical step was to build a high performance high-powered aeroplane. Remember, up to that date, none of us had flown anything more than 200 horse. And um, at this date, of course, a number of new aeroplanes were about to come into service use. The Hurricane, the Spitfire, the Fairy Battle, the Blenheim, the new generation of clean cantilever monoplanes, ...fitted with uh, all sorts of gadgets which up till then had been unknown... ...such as the tactical undercarriages, variable pitch propellers, flaps, and so on... ...and there was no suitable trainer. So we got out of design of what we felt to be a suitable trainer. Uh, we got uh, Rolls-Royce interested in it because their Kestrel engine was about to go out of production... ...and was being replaced by the more powerful Merlin. We said, well, look here, wouldn't you like to keep the Kestrel into in production a bit longer... If we can get this advanced train of ours ordered, it's based on the Kessel engine... it will give you a a run on the cast for a good deal more hundred engines and you would otherwise had. and Rolls-Royce that seemed seen them a very good idea and so they went a long way towards sponsoring their aeroplane because remember to build a prototype of a high powered aeroplane cost a good deal more than our very still very slender resources would permit and so Rolls-Royce took a financial interest in the firm and did financially back that aeroplane well we submitted the aeroplane to the ministry we didn't know ministry as well at that stage as we did later on and here I do make an exception to our good friends at RAE, who right from the start of the piece not to the finish always were good friends of ours but the ministry in general of course was the bane of our life and we the bane of theirs to be quite fair um, so when we submitted this design to the ministry and we said look here you will need a high performance monoplane trainer you've only got the old heart biplane. you will need that as a new aircraft that are coming into service the ministry carried to this and now said oh no of course we don't, we don't want anything like uh, no nonsense or hopelessly premature Well, we were so convinced that we were right that we went ahead with it as a private venture uh, on Rolls Royce money and um, we built the aeroplane and there was the prototype Kestel uh, we called it the Miles Kestrel, and the engine was the Rolls Royce Kestel engine and that had a top speed of 296 miles an hour at 15,000 feet, the height of the engine, uh, which wasn't very really bad when you realized that, A, it was a two-seater, B, it was only 14 miles an hour slower than the Hurricane, which had the Merlin engine, which was um, 250 horse more than ours. So we had a two-seater with a lower-powered engine, we were only, I say, 14 miles an hour slower than the Hurricane of that date. Well, anyway, that airplane... Uh, flew and was perfectly successful. We indulged in one or two rather childish but amusing bits of publicity. For instance, as i told you, its actual top speed was 296. We waited until one day when there was a really howling, northerly gale, and we then took off and climbed to 30,000 feet over Oxford and we then turned south, you know, turned back downwind, stuck the nose down, opened a throttle wide, and arrived over our E Fondler eight minutes later. I uh, say we were about a hundred mile an hour gale behind us and going downhill at full throttle, and the average speed was five hundred and four. <laughs> <laughs> uh, whereupon we sent a telegram off to the minister saying prototype Kestel has just done five hundred and four miles an hour. We thought it unnecessary to add any further details in the condition of the flight. We got a delightful telegram back from the minister in which he said, congratulations on meteoric flight. But anyway, uh, the ministry by that time had realised that an advanced trainer was called for, would be needed, and they had been wrong in saying nothing of the sort, so they issued uh, a specification for an advanced trainer, and the contract was awarded to de Havillands, who um, then built an aeroplane called the D.H. Dom, which was not a success. Uh, that was no fault of the Havillands. The Havillands are one of those firms which always produces good airplanes but in this particular case they made the mistake of course of taking any notice of the minister's specification they built this this airplane we made the same mistake ourselves on one occasion only once but the airplane we built for it was a flop Uh, well the the Heverlands I say against their better judgment uh, built it strictly in accordance with the minister's specification the airplane was a flop and suddenly the Ministry found themselves with no advanced trainer, and so they had to um, swallow their pride and come to us and say, all right, okay, we want to order your Kestrel. And um, that was, incidentally at that date, the biggest contract that had ever been given for a production aeroplane. trainer and there is the production line. The Kessel went into production under the name of Master. The various modifications had to be done to comply with ministry requirements. The main result of the, of the modifications the ministry insisted on was uh, they brought the top speed down from 296 to 226. But They were the customers, and so we, had, there was, we were told uh, that was the production line. It was a moving production line, and I think I'm right in saying that that was the first time a moving production line was ever used anywhere in the world in the aircraft industry. Again, I'm not claiming that we invented moving production lines. They were common enough in the motor industry, but up till that date, I don't think that any aircraft manufacturer had ever produced them. Um, one thing we were rather proud of was, as a result of this production order of the master, the majority of pilots of the Battle of Britain were attained on our airplane. And as the Battle of Britain was the most decisive battle in the recorded history of mankind, we were rather pleased to think that we had played a small and humble part in that. In that all the chaps or practically all the chaps in that battle were attained. On the master trainer, the master was specifically designed to reproduce the handling characteristics of the Spit Spitfire, so that once a chap had been trained on the master, um, he would have no hesitation or no difficulty at all in getting into a Hulligan Spitfire and going off. Uh, at the same time, we got uh, quite a big contract for an elementary trainer called the Magister, which was only just a development of the old original Hawk, which uh, operations had started with reading the thing I showed you, which was produced initially for F 95, well now the Magister was basically the Hawk, with one or two small modifications. The cockpits had to be enlarged to enable service pilots to get in and out wearing a parachute, because the uh, Hawk, of course, was just a club airplane, with very small cockpits, and you can wear Parachutes, of course, and club were. So that was one of the modifications necessitated in the Magister. But that modification brought in its wake uh, certain uh, changes in the airflow over the tail. And it was found that w- with the larger cockpits uh, necessitated by the Magister, that uh, on occasions, under certain conditions, and. Uncontrollable spin could develop, or these—if uh, you spun the airplane deliberately—you could, under certain conditions, fail to come out. Many people were killed in that way, and that necessitated uh, certain mods to the tail. It had a high aspect ratio rather, whereas the old hawk, rather, was like that. And also in it of putting certain strakes along there in front of the tailplane. Here again, we owed a big debt to our good friends at it was they who told us what to do. We merely suddenly ran into this unexpected trouble with the Magister, and we went along to RE and said, please chaps, what do we do to cure this? And it was they who told us what to do, and that did to cure the trouble completely. Well now, the Magister is fairly well known as an elementary trainer. It was used throughout the war, along with the tiger moth, But, uh, Probably few people have often thought of the Magister as a bomber. It seems rather well ludicrous to think of a little elephant in the gypsy major engine as a bomber. But how it came about was this, that in 1940, after the collapse of France, when there was every likelihood of this country being invaded, uh, I mean, we were threatened of invasion for quite an appreciable period, every likelihood of any time now, we'd lost the bulk of our equipment in, on the continent, as you know, and there was every likelihood that the enemy would, we were next on the list to be invaded, just as Holland, Belgium, and France had all been overrun incredibly quickly. Well, we re- reacted to this uh, proposition rather violently, again we were tending to be impetuous in those days, and we were determined uh, at waiting that if such a thing happened, if the enemy dared set foot on the shores of our country, we were going to put every airplane into the air we could. Every airplane available, regardless of whether it was high-powered, low-powered, fast or slow, no doubt we should have been down by the hundred, but we were quite determined that the enemy dared set foot in our country. Every airplane was going to be pressed into service. And so that is why you see the Magister equipped with a pitiful little bomb. Every Magister we had on the airfield was so equipped, and we rushed off down the Kent to bomb the enemy. As you know in point of fact, that didn't happen. The enemy didn't invade us, but that was what was going to happen if he had well, round about that time uh, when the Battle of Britain was raging, uh, as you all do know, both sides were losing aircraft at a fantastic uh, rate. Uh, the Germans were losing aircraft far faster than we were, but equally they had far more airplanes they could afford to lose more airplanes than we did and there was the ever present risk that the um, battle might be um, lost through our running short of aircraft we were steadily winning the Battle of Britain but if we ran short of aircraft we'd be finished and so naturally everybody was casting around for any means uh, by which uh, the situation could be coped with and we thought the only possible way of doing it if we did uh, come up against that situation was to have a fighter which could be put into a rapid production both in this country and in, America, uh, and in Canada and Uh, if such a thing could be designed and built. So we went to the minister, who was then Lord Beaverbrook, and a man of action. We said, look, we believe that we can design a fighter which, in the event of the uh, necessity of rising could be put into large-scale production that whole design would be dominated by simplicity everything would be sacrificed to speed of production may we have your permission to go ahead produce the design and build a prototype just in case it's needed we hope and pray it'll never be needed may we do that and um, people said said the situation is desperate go ahead design your fighter and build it just as quickly as you can show me what you can do and there is what we did. Not a not a beautiful looking aeroplane. The um, power plant was a standard Merlin Twenty power plant, complete as fitted in the Hurricane Mark II and in the Lancaster bomber. The um, Finn and Rado were standard master parts, and so were the controls in the cockpit, the joystick, Rallo bar, throttle box. Anything you could do which could save production time was incorporated. The machine was of wooden construction, so it could be built in Canada just as well as in this country. And that aeroplane, from the day we got the OK from the minister, was designed, built, and flown in 65 days. Now, that just shows what you can do when the country really is up against it I mean it would be quite unthinkable in peacetime but nevertheless at a moment like that when the country really is up against it the British people have got this characteristic of showing what they can do and you can do things which would be literally unthinkable under normal conditions Uh, it had a fixed undercarriage again because of simplicity, no hydraulics hand operated flaps, fixed undercarriage and because it had a fixed undercarriage that uh, released uh, additional storage space in the wings into which the undercarriage would normally have attracted. And we used that space by fitting 50% more fuel than either Hurricane or Spitfire carried, which meant that you didn't have to drop out of combat so often. And we had 12 Browning guns against the 8 fitted in Hurricane and Spitfire. So that was a 12 gun fighter with 50% more endurance. Um... It had a higher wing loading and therefore a higher landing speed than the Hawker Spitfire, and that shows a lot of It was that was the prototype. Um, nobody was hurt other than the aeroplane, but you see, it just sort over the aerodrome, just it just ran out of there went through the fence and into that sand kit. Well, that aeroplane never went into production because, thank heavens, the battle was won without the desperate situation arising. But there was the thing which might have saved the situation had the, the need arisen. Uh, now, around about the same time, an idea occurred to us. We said, look here, at the moment, the Germans appear to be winning the war. We all know they're not going to win in the end. At the moment, things are going their way. But the day will come when the tide will turn, when the Germans will begin to realize they are being beaten. And when that day comes, they may resort to desperate measures. They may resort to indiscriminate bombing using pilotless bombs. We feel that this is a situation which ought to be foreseen and prepared for. And so we put up a proposal to the ministry for a simple design of a very cheap and simple small, low-powered aeroplane to carry a 1,000-pound bomb, be uh, radio-controlled, the radio control on all that side of it was going to be done by our good friends at RAE, but that we were going to be responsible for building the aeroplane. We put this up to the Ministry and said, please, may we suggest that this is put into large-scale production and stored. We are not for one moment suggesting that such a barbaric means of warfare be resorted to we would never initiate that ourselves but the day may come when the enemy does that and if he does we ought to be ready to hit back in kind and here is uh, the proposal we put up there is the aeroplane there is the thousand pound bomb and our good friends at RA were quite confident that they could direct it by radio onto the target within a reasonable degree of accuracy and the proposals put up to the Ministry and were rejected with horror. The Ministry said, what a barbaric idea think of uh, waging war in that sort of way in this bombing, and it wouldn't have anything to do with it, and it wasn't put into production. Well, then when the 1944 came and the Germans were getting desperate and the V1s started coming over, the moment the first V1 landed in this country, we got a telegram from the ministers saying, on no account are you to reveal that you put up this idea to us years ago and we turned it down. <laughs> well, I mean, it wasn't any point we wouldn't make made any odds anyway whether we revealed it or not. I mean, this thing hadn't been built and it's an awful pity because the V1s came nearer to shaking the morale of this country then, in fact, anything else in the war really did uh, do quite a lot of harm to the morale of this country, whereas if we had been able to hit back in kind straight away, the probability is that the Germans would have given up using V1. Now taking another jump, um uh, uh, up till uh, the period we've been talking about, all our airplanes had been a wooden construction, and we had decided at the time had come to go over to metal construction, and we decided to do it in stages, which I think was a wise decision, and to produce our first uh, attempt at metal construction, an airplane with a wooden wing and a metal fuselage. At that time, the ministry issued a specification for a high-speed target tug, and that was the airplane we produced to that specification. That had a metal fuselage, a wooden wing, a couple of cyclone engines, and that was, incidentally, about the fastest airplane we ever produced. That had a top speed of about uh, 350 mph. It was generally similar in size, performance, everything else, to the bow fighter. But again, it was a, a step forward in our experience. Well, now going on to a totally different story, round about that stage in the war, we were concerned by the, as indeed everybody was, by the uh, large losses of shipping in the Atlantic due to enemy submarine activity. We were casting around our minds as to whether we could do something about producing uh, a naval fighter. There were not only large shipping losses, but also large losses in naval pilots, because they were being... Uh, ...forced to use uh, a version of the Hurricane and the version of the Spitfire, or the fire, both of which were never designed or intended initially for operation from carriers, and the view from uh, Hurricane or Spitfire really wasn't good enough, perfectly adequate for landing on an airfield, but not on a carrier... And so large numbers of traps were being lost purely and simply because we were forcing them to use an aeroplane for a purpose for which it was never designed. And we were thinking, well, how could one overcome this? Uh, the helicopter and Spitfire had to be fitted with folding wings, which was a heavy and expensive mod. It had to be fitted with these wings to take them up and down on the lifts of an aircraft carrier. So, cast on our minds as to a possible layout which would provide both a good view and b, small enough to go up and down on the lift of a carrier, we decided that a tandem wing was a possible solution. The only thing was, would a tandem wing aeroplane be successful? Would it fly? Would it be controllable? Well, again, uh, uh, resorting to our principle, let's try full scale. So we built a very rough wooden mock-up of just such an aeroplane. This was a mo- uh, rough mock-up of the aeroplanes we were suggesting for a naval fighter. With a pilot in the nose, having a perfect view, engine in the tail... Ammunition, guns and so on, the midships. And as you can see, the airplane did fly. We built this in deadly secrecy in great hurry. It only took us six weeks to build. We flew it. And um, having flown it, we put the design up to the ministry the design we put up to the Ministry is that that was the full-scale naval fighter we proposed to them, and the Ministry, as we expected, showed up oh, nonsense, what a ridiculous idea, and an airplane like that wouldn't fly, and if it did, wouldn't be controllable, so we said, well, it would and it does, come and see it. We got a most almighty stick torn off office of building something in time of war that we hadn't been told to build. But anyway, we brought them down, we showed them the airplane flying, and said, now, come on chaps, how about um, giving us an order for this naval fighter? And the ministry went away and said they would think about it, and as far as I know, they're still thinking about it to this day. That is all we ever heard. Well, round about that time, the ministry, uh, round about the same time, the ministry, uh, issued a specification for a high altitude, high speed, unarmed bomber, the B-1141. Uh, they didn't invite tenders from the industry in general. They invited hawkers to submit a design, which they did, and they had to play an orthodox airplane with two sabers. RAE themselves, which was rather enterprising, went into the competition and produced a very interesting tail-first design with two jet engines, and we, uninvited, uh, submitted a design. Um, uh, in the end... The um, airplane was never ordered, neither the RAE airplane, nor Hawkers, nor our own. But again, all unauthorized, we went ahead and built uh, a mock-up, and there it is. Um, We did quite a lot of flying on that airplane, and... um, I subsequently had it from us, and they did quite a lot of, of flying on it. It was quite an interesting job. It was only one-off research job. It's the only other thing I've ever thrown whereby uh, you had, as part of your pre-landing check, to look down into the cockpit and see where the stick was. The reason is because it had um, elevators on the front wing, uh, ailments on the rear wing, uh, flaps on both wings and by a suitable adjustment of the flaps you could trim the aeroplane to fly straight and level with a stick in any position from right forward to right aft <laughs> and so when you were coming in on finals you always had to have a hurried look down just to make sure that you, you hadn't already got the stick fully back the is, but there are all sorts of I could s- tell you so many amusing things about uh, some of these aeroplanes there just isn't time to do it uh, anyway, I uh, say so that aeroplane wasn't ordered and. Um So only that one uh, flying-scale model was built. We did, at a later date, when the jet engine had come out, uh, submit to the Ministry, with the blessing of the Postmaster General, uh, a design for a triple-jet version of that self-same airplane, that was our bomber project, and we fitted three Whittle jet engines. Uh, The Postmaster General at that time was putting forward a scheme for running a whole network of uh, jet aircraft services purely for the post office for a mail train up and down the country this was just after the war and that was the design we put in for it but the ministry said no not only to us but also to the postmaster general and constantly that never came to anything we, we were all rather sorry well reverting back to naval matters just for a moment as I mentioned just now there were large shipping losses due to submarine activity in the Atlantic and we were casting on our minds as to whether there was anything to be done about it and it occurred to us but if in every convoy of merchant ships it was possible to equip one ship in every ten, say, with a small deck on the back of it, on the st- sorry, on the stern, being a landover I rather <laughs> well, not to use the correct naval terms. Um, and if one could have a light aeroplane catapulted off this ship, which could patrol round uh, radius of about a hundred miles around the convoy throughout the hours of daylight in other words you'd catapult your one airplane off it would do uh, maintain its patrol until it was nearly out of fuel then land back again with a simple form of rest the gear on this deck uh, an- another airplane would be sent off immediately if you kept that up right throughout the hours of daylight you could keep a, an big area right the way around the convoy swept entirely clear of submarines you couldn 't operate this during the dark but the submarines wouldn 't be able to catch up during the hours of darkness and you 'd start operations again in the daylight next day. That was the scheme well, the first thing was to see whether it was feasible so we uh, used an aeroplane which we had actually built at the invitation of the army, an AOP aeroplane called the Messenger. And we used that self-same aeroplane because it had a very short takeoff, very low landing speed, and the necessary load carry capacity to carry a couple of depth charges. And we marked out a tiny deck on the airfield, fitted it with a simple arrest gear, and tried it out full scale. The idea was this, uh, little deck was going to be, as I said, on the stern of the ship with a net at the front end of it, so supposing the pilot misjudged his landing and didn't pick up the arrestor gear, he wouldn't fly on into the superstructure of the ship. He'd have to be caught in the net. Well, we tried that out full scale on the airfield, and here is the airplane, without using the arrestor gear, actually being thrown into this net. This net had a a gap in the middle of it, so the nose and the propeller went through the gap, so the whole impact was taken by the wings on the net. The... Uh, posts were held by bungee cords, so when it hit the net, the whole net did that, and then came back again. This was all perfectly feasible, and it didn't damage the airplane or the pilot. So, we then put the scheme up, both to the ministry and the admiralty, and an august, oh, first of all, of course, the reaction was, don't be ridiculous, it wouldn't work. And we said, it would and does, come and see. And so then a very august, um, gaggle of people came down, including, incidentally, Sir Matthew Slattery, and a whole lot of very learned people came down um, and so happened on the day when uh, they came down we were going to demonstrate it at the very last minute just before the party arrived the wind treacherously reversed itself went round to 180 degrees so not only did we have to fly this thing into the net we had to fly this into the net downwind but thank heavens all went well and it all worked and all these uh, august people who said it wouldn't work went away and said um, they would think it over and um, again, as far as I know, yeah <laughs> uh, before we leave that we to call the messenger, I first tell you a rather amusing incident, amusing as it turned out in the end, way it might well have been otherwise, just after the war, uh, a test pilot uh, of both paul 's called Lindsay Neal he came to us and said, "Look here." War's just over. I haven't been for holiday right throughout the war. I would like to take my wife and kids over to the continent. Could you possibly lend me an airplane? We said, well, yes, we can have one of these messages, if you like. So he took his messenger and off he went. And he was over eastern France and there was suddenly a loud bang and the airplane saw all him reared itself up to about that angle on the flash. Well, fortunately, as I say, Lindsay was a test pilot and was therefore accustomed to thinking and acting quickly, which he had to do. So he shouted to the wife and keeps the pilot into the front. He wound down the flap, stuck the stick hard forward and came down under perfect control and landed. And that is how it is. Now, what had happened was the wooden propeller had broken, and the ar- uh, one blade had broken, the outer balance force had just put the whole engine right clean out. And this done is very clean, you know, went sort of right back to the bulkhead. That was the airplane after it had landed. That, which looks like damage, was only done by souvenir hunters. Uh, he did come down and actually land perfectly safely. It meant having the stick right forward against the instrument panel, but he did manage to come down under control, so I thought it was oh. all interesting. Heaven knows where the CG was, must have been round about by the trailing edge somewhere. <laughs> Well, anyway, the war is now over and we were giving thought to uh, what airplanes we were going to produce in the immediate post-war era. And one of the things we thought would be useful to have would be a cheap freighter, an airplane low-powered, low-performance, cheap to build, cheap to operate, and carrying a reasonable payload. And uh, there it is. This is a thing we call the Aerovan. It had a couple of Silas majors, just the same as you have in the Tiger Moth or Maggie, um, it carried a ton of payload, and uh, it had a, a cruising speed of about 110, very easy to fly, very short takeoff, and only cost um, just over 5,000 pounds, and quite a number of those were built and sold. The reason I included that picture, in fact, the reason why we had that picture taken was because people used to, I bet you it wouldn't hold height on one engine, so we said, well, the camera cannot lie. And so that is why that, that picture was taken. But quite a number of airplanes were, were built, and I could tell you a whole host of amusing stories about some of the things which happened in some of them, including one where the pilot was by himself and the other thing, he had a crate of pigs, a ton's worth of pigs, and, and they were crated, and they somehow or other managed to break out of their crate. And this was over water, so he couldn't just put down the nearest field, and the pigs started charging up and down, rather like the Gadarene swine, and uh, the undulations uh, of the aeroplane, coupled with the odour from the pigs, the pilots in a very poor shape indeed, and eventually he made the air. There were a whole lot more instances like that we just haven't got time for. Another idea we had was to take the same aeroplane, fitted instead of with two service major engines, fitted with four service minor engines, and make that that portion detachable. The idea being, to save handling, the idea was you had just a box mounted in the middle, coinciding with the CG of the airplane, having its own pair of wheels. Now, instead of having to load freight onto a lorry, drive it to the airfield, load it into the airplane, fly to its destination, unload it into another lorry, you just loaded it straight into this box uh, you loaded it so that it balanced about its wheels which are in the middle you towed it behind any car you like out to the air you hooked it straight onto the airplane and off you went and when you got to your destination you unhooked it and it was towed into its destination it saved a lot of loading and unloading it's always been a source of surprise to me but that, that idea hasn't been taken up to this day which strikes me as a very really good idea But then when you flew the airplane back you could either fly back with another box or if there wasn't another box you could just take the tail fairing and attach it onto the back of the cockpit and fly it back unloaded so um, because the box was made to coincide with the CG of the aeroplane and there it is there it hasn't got the box on it's got the tail fairing immediately on behind the cockpit but that was a perfectly successful aeroplane and I still think to this day a worthwhile idea well anyway as I said the war was over uh, we fought Hitherto, we've only concentrated on building aeroplanes, but this ties some other things as well. We decided to embark upon producing our own engine, our own variable pitch propeller, and our own automatic pilot. And uh, we did actually, in point of fact, build all those. And much we were more astonished than anybody else. They all worked. Our engine really did work. Our variable pitch propeller really worked. It was a fully feathering one, and our automatic pilot uh, worked. Um that is a, uh, just one of our standard light airplanes on which we uh, did the initial tests on the automatic pilot. It so happened it fell to my lot to do the first flight. I was absolutely terrified because I didn't know anything about automatic pilots. I regard them with grave suspicion. It may sound rather funny saying that in my present job today. But after all, this was in the early days. But anyway, I duly really got on board with the, uh, technician who had been responsible mainly for the production of this automatic pilot and times what appeared to be a reasonable height. And I said, okay, engage it. And he looked at me very dubiously and said, uh, well, I, I, I suppose you, will, you will be able to retain control, won't you? And I said, well, I presume if, uh, if anything goes wrong, you can immediately disconnect it, can't you? And he said, no, no, I don't think I can. I thought, oh gosh, for a ghastly moment. So he was like, flinging desperately to the wheel and said, OK, engage, let's see what happens. And um, I was just sitting there very rigid, holding the wheel very tightly indeed. And a long time seemed to go by and then a disconsolate voice said, it doesn't work. Gosh, we were back down to the ground again in a matter of minutes. But it did subsequently work, and we had some very uh, good results from it, and we, were, at the time when the firm finally went broke, uh, we had just got a production order from the ministry for this automatic pilot. The, the other thing which is interesting about it was, that I think I'm right in saying it was the world's first electric automatic pilot. There had been automatic pilots, the ordinary suck-blow type, the pneumatic type, but I think this was the world's first um, electric one. We built it largely from um, German components, which we managed to uh, extract from our good friends at RE. I told them they were good friends of liked like throughout our career, and but for the German components, the way of gyros and so on, that they were able to give us, we wouldn't have been able to build those. Um, a, I'm now going to show you an idea. So, hitherto, I've only shown you other things were actually built. Uh, I'm not just going to show you one idea of the many designs which we put up which didn't go into production, because so I think it was a good idea. The Navy, at, uh, this was in the early jet era, wanted a jet fighter. Now, the snag was, for naval operations, they wanted to have a long endurance uh, they want to have a, uh, to be able to patrol for hours on end, but at the same time to have jet performance. Well, it was very difficult to know how to combine the two, because jet fighters in those days had a very short endurance indeed, whereas, of course, the other things which could have a long endurance uh, wouldn't have jet performance. And the idea we put up was this, where we had a low-powered piston engine and a jet engine in the back of the cell. The idea being that when you were just patrolling... Uh, for hours and hours and hours you had your jet engine shut down and you were just patrolling at quite a low speed but for many, many hours on end on this low-powered piston engine. If you then had to go into combat you started up your jet engine at a moment's notice and you went into combat. Now that airplane uh, wasn't produced but I still think this day for the time it was a worthwhile idea and I think it's a pity that it wasn't. Well then uh, again we're still talking about po- the post-war era and uh, The country had uh, appointed a committee called the Brabazon Committee under the chairmanship of Lord Brabazon, about which you no doubt all know, whose job it was to uh, issue specifications for those aeroplanes which was anticipated would be needed in the post-war era. And we... uh, cast around in our minds what sort of thing we could submit to the Brabison Committee we obviously weren't fitted to build a very large airplane at that juncture we were very anxious to build an all metal airplane so we put up a four engined feeder line type a sort of 20 seater with four gypsy queen engines the same engines as the dove and uh, the Brabison Committee did accept that and it was ordered Um, that was the prototype marathon it was incidentally our first four engined airplane And it did go into limited production, actually, after our firm had packed up, Handy Pages, as you know, took over what was left of the firm and built about 40 of those. But that was our first all-metal aeroplane, and it was quite a reasonable aeroplane. Um, There was also, we produced a twin turboprop version of the same aeroplane, uh, but that didn't go into production, it was only the prototype built. Another airplane we produced about the same time, which would have gone into production but for the fact that the firm went through, was a larger version of that cheap L-Van freighter I showed you before. We wanted to go for something a bit larger. That, if you remember, was a, a small wooden twin-engine aeroplane with a tonne payload. Uh, The next one we wanted to go for was a four-engine aeroplane with two-and-a-half tonnes payload and all metal and still cheap to build and operate. And there was the prototype merchantman, and that undoubtedly would have gone into fairly large-scale production but for the firm packing up. Uh, That, again, was fantastically cheap. It carried two-and-a-half tonnes of payload, and the uh, total cost of the aeroplane was only £20,000. And uh, that was its whole purpose, to be cheap to buy, cheap to operate, and carry a reasonable payload. Well, another line of research, sorry to be so bitty and skipping from one thing to another, there's the only way to do it in the time available. Another uh, line which we were all keen was on uh, an aeroplane with... Uh, in which as far as possible the wing was made to merge into the fuselage you would have a fuselage roughly of aerofoil section with large fillets to the wings and the wing merging the idea was to have a big aeroplane threat that design but again to tie it out on a small scale we did build this small aeroplane which was meant to be a scale model of what was ultimately intended to be a, a large transport aeroplane you can't really see the true shape of that aeroplane there, but I can only tell you the, the wing did merge both in thickness and in plan form into the fuselage which as you see was roughly aerofoil section uh, one amusing characteristic I remember about that aeroplane it had this big perspex nose to it a big perspex molding which created the most astonishing degrees of distortion when you were coming into land when you were on finals you would see the aerodrome in front of you looking like a rough sea that sort of shape and as things moved past you, so they vanished. You'd see an aeroplane parked over there, and a second later, it would just appear to vanish. The distortions produced by that and the windscreen really were quite amusing. <laughs> there were all sorts of amusing instances in collection of that aeroplane, which I haven't uh, got time to tell you. But that was a scale model of a uh, project which we put up for the Brabison 1 specification. The number one specification of the Brabison Committee was for transplanting aeroplane, Uh to be the first aircraft to operate a non-stop service between London and New York. Uh, Up till that date, uh, no aircraft were capable of doing that against the headwind in either direction. And we, uninvited, put up a design, and so did Shorts. uh, As you all know, the order was given to Bristol's. It wasn't issued to the industry on a competitive basis, but uh, Bristol's were given the order. But uh, we and Shorts did put up each of us a design which wasn't adopted and the design was based on what this little airplane was a scale model of and that was the design for our transatlantic airplane. It had eight engines driving four air screws, pairs of engines buried completely in the wings as they were on the Brabazon. The engines were rather interesting. They were a new engine which was being produced by Rolls-Royce. It was a 2,300 horse uh, 12-cylinder V diesel engine, uh, liquid cooled with, uh, turbo supercharging. And Rolls-Royce were developing that engine, and that was the engine we designed for our, uh, we incorporated in our project design. Uh, that was a very different kettle of fish from the Brabazon which was ordered and built, uh, in that it was very much faster. The Bristol's uh, produced the Brabazon in accordance with the official specification for the Ministry, and, and the result was it was not a success. And it's fairly obvious why it wouldn't be, because on the, uh, the North Atlantic route you get headwinds of 80 and sometimes 100 miles an hour, and therefore unless uh, you have a very fast airplane. The effect of those headwinds will be disastrous. Now the Brabazon was designed in accordance with the specification to have a cruising speed of 240. If you've got a 100 mile an hour headwind, your ground speed went down to one hundred and forty it would take you twenty one hours to get from London to New York and the brason carried seventeen hours so I mean' a simple sum like that should have shown right from the start it wouldn't be a success it't it wasn't, it was not Bristol's fault it was uh, accepted so far that they made the mistake of designing it to a minister specification now this was an airplane designed for a cruising speed of about uh, between 300 and 350, and therefore the headwinds wouldn't have anything like the same effect, and this would have done the job. But anyway, it was only of academic interest, because it was never built. The reason I've shown it is because ten years later no more, about 12 years later the Britannia, I think I'm right in saying, was the first aeroplane to operate a regular service both ways across the Atlantic, east-west west-to-east, against any headwinds and this will show you how our aeroplane of 1943, compared with the Britannia, the long-range Britannia the 300 series, later there was this astonishing degree of similarity in other words, had the ministry ordered our aeroplane, they could have had what was the first successful transatlantic aerofane they could have had it 10 or 12 years before in point of fact they did anyway we must uh, leave that particular topic because we are running out of time uh, we had a great deal of acrimonious correspondence with the ministry over the fact they didn't order his serratane of ours and uh, we made ourselves very objectionable to Sir Stafford Cripps, who was then the minister, and in the end, as a result of that, he said, look, chaps, if you only really shut up about this transatlantic air of yours, you may be right, and we may be wrong in having ordered the Bristol One, not yours, but yours is not going to be ordered. so shut up. But look, to sweeten the pill, if I give you the most challenging and difficult uh, project I've ever given to anybody, would you shut up? So he said, well, all right, provided it is really challenging and really difficult, and provided you're really going to order it. And uh, he said, okay, well now, what I'm going to ask you to do is to build a, a research jet airplane, because with the advent of jet propulsion, it has become obvious that for the first time in the history of aeronautics, uh, sonic speed can be attained being quite unthinkable with the old piston-engine-propeller combination. All sorts of problems will crop up in connection with the attainment of sonic speed, and we want to build a research aeroplane purely for the purpose of investigating the problems at or near sonic speed. That was the um, task with which we were charged. There was little or no data on which to go, But uh, we had to start from scratch, and in addition to that, of course, the only jet engines available for that date were a comparatively low-powered one. The engine prescribed for that was Frank Whittle's W2700 engine, which gave a thrust of 2,000 pounds, static at sea level, at ground level, uh, which, of course, by modern standards, is a very tiny engine indeed, and to expect an aeroplane, even a small one, to do sonic speed on that. Uh, I was asking a lot well first and foremost it meant designing a very very thin wing indeed it was the thinnest wing which had ever been built up to that date the T over C at the root was 7.5 and the tip was 4% It was a very tiny airplane. It was fitted with this engine. We were working as one team with Frank Whittle's team in Power Jets. They were doing the power plant, we were doing the airframe. It was a very, very happy relationship indeed between our two organizations. It was going to be fitted with a thrust augmenter and afterburning. And it was the ministry specification called for a top speed of a thousand miles an hour at the top of port at thirty six thousand feet. And that at a time when no airplane had done five hundred miles an hour, as you can see it was a fairly tough proposition.
0: Well, anyway,
1: we got on with the design and uh Again, on the principle we had always adopted to try get some full-scale results, we built a full-scale version of the wing and fitted it to a light aeroplane just to get what the handling characteristics were going to be like and also particularly what the uh, coefficient of lift was going to be. So there was an old Falcon fuselage fitted with uh, the wing or these... Uh, a model of the wing of our supersonic aeroplane, that's a very thin wing. It had a sharp leading edge and had the usual blunt leading edge and one of the objects was to, I say, determine full scale what CL max you were going to get, because that in turn would fix the wing area. Um, the general layout, this is the wind tunnel model which still exists, and this is the wind tunnel model which was tested farther um, the engine was carried amidships there, with a the fuel tank wrapped around it. Uh, the pilot was carried in this cone there. This was the air intake, the an annular air intake. The pilot was carried in this very tiny and cramped cone in the nose. Um, All-moving tailplane, which of course at that, at that time was a was, um, novelty, and of course power-operated controls, all those things were in there. Quite innovations, and very interesting they were too. Uh, as regards, uh, we didn't have eject uh, seats in those days. We had to provide some means of escape for the pilot, and this was going to be a two-stage escape. Uh, this cone which he was mounted was held into the main structure with some bolts incorporating cordite charges so that in the event of emergency you fired the charges the whole cone completely the pilot came away in the back of the cone there was a large parachute which was then used for slowing it down to a reasonable speed so eventually the cone was just falling nose down under its own parachute and then not until then did the pilot bail out with his own parachute that was the escape means there is the cockpit, uh, it was very uncomfortable, you had to sit in a semi, to keep the dimensions down, you had to sit in a semi-reclining attitude, your legs up more or less on the level of your shoulders, and the front wheel retracting up between the two other pedals, between your legs. It was very, very cramped indeed, but again it didn't matter, because it was only just a one off the search aeroplane. Um, that wind tunnel model you saw just now was tested at Fandler, and there you can see it in the tunnel, and you can see the shock waves. Well, anyway, um, there is uh, an artist's impression of the finished article. Uh, that aeroplane was never completed, uh, as we had, uh, have always had a habit of doing right up to the present day. We spend millions of pounds on producing a design, building something, and suddenly changing our minds and saying we don't want it. Uh, in the case of the TSR-2, we at least let it fly. This aeroplane wasn't even allowed to fly. This was cancelled when it was three quarters finished. And by that cancellation, we handed to America the honor of being the first nation to fly supersonic. The following year, the Americans flew the rocket-driven Bell X-1, supersonically, and there's a tragedy when one realizes that the jet engine which made supersonic flight possible was a British invention that Britain threw away, threw away. Uh, the chance of prestige of being the First Nation to fly supersonic and not for ten years was this admitted to be a mistake but ten years later the then Minister of Aircraft Production or Minister of Supplies he then was ten years later did publicly admit in a speech that it was a tragic mistake the cancellation of that aeroplane what they did was they carried on with a number of model tests they gave a contract to Vickers who built a a rocket-driven scale model of that aeroplane and there was some very amusing instance, indeed, which I could tell you if only we had time in connection with that. The only thing I will mention about that rocket-driven model is that it did completely vindicate the design of that aeroplane, and it did prove that had it been completed and thrown, it would have uh, done the design performance. Coming back once more to our old love of light aeroplanes, this was an aeroplane we built just after the war called the Gemini, there's still some in existence, one through in the King's Cup last year. Uh, again we just wanted to show people that it would fly on one engine because most people didn't believe that it would and about 150 of those were built Uh coming back up to later they still there's a little jet driven train airplane called the Miles Student It's was an extremely pleasant little airplane to fly that actually only one prototype was built there was a proposal to put it into uh production in South Africa and in point of fact that prototype was created in just about to be shipped out to South Africa when the present government came into power and that airplane is still in its crate down at Ford uh, but the, the proposal was that it was going to be put into production as a trainer for the South African Air Force and it is a very pleasant little airplane to fly and uh, the last picture I'm going to show you um, is an airplane one of the last airplanes designed by Miles and produced by Beagle that is the Miles M118 or more usually known as the Beagle 218 Uh, it is in effect a Gemini replacement Uh, It again all the nice handy characteristics which so much were a feature of both the Messenger and the Gemini Um, there's only one more thing I wanted to say to you and that was that... Uh, well, two more things I want to say to you. First of all, because I want to leave the time if you want to heckle me. Um, the, the two last things I want to say to you, first of all, was well, so that many people think of the firm of Miles as being a firm which is only built light here, let's say. Well, now, we built a total of just over 6,000 airplanes, all told. And of those 6,000, 5,000 of them were airplanes of 700 horse or more. So well, I'm just mentioning that because most people, because Miles Light things is so well-known, most people rather tend to think of Miles as a, essentially a light thing organisation. And uh, i probably just like to you know there's five of up- them built where relatively high-powered aeroplanes. And the last point I wanted to make was that whereas this is a historical talk, mostly um, dealing with the past, uh, forestalling what may be a possible question, is you may say, what are the future? I can tell you that George Miles is working on the project design for an aeroplane which is intended to fill the large gap between the best of the existing propeller driven executive types and the expensive high-performance jets. In other words, something that's going to fill the big gap between a thing like the Beagle 206 and a thing like the DH-125. This design has already uh, reached a mock-up stage. I've seen the mock-up myself and the drawings and calculations. It has been recommended by the TARC for government support. Uh, no decision has yet been given, but all it is waiting for now is the necessary finance, and provided it does get a measure of government support, you will find that one more really outstanding aircraft will yet come from the miles stable. Thank you.
0: well, might I say, I think we're very fortunate tonight to have another pioneer come and tell us about the beginnings of aeronautics. Even though those beginnings were much after the early right period, they were still beginnings when people could do things. I have met both the Miles brothers many times and been surprised at their enthusiasm. I'm less surprised tonight now that I've seen one of the staff who has an even greater enthusiasm. I congratulate you, sir, on not only on your excellent lecture, but on the enthusiasm with which you've given it to us, and of the fearlessness in which you have described some of what might be called the failures, as well as the those which are so very successful and so well-known to us all. Now, I don't want to keep you uh, if you want to ask questions, and i now throw the meeting open anyone to get up and ask questions, I'm sure you'll get a cheerful and enthusiastic reply.
1: What I've done up for now is I, I knew what I was going to say. Well, now we come to this where I don't know what's going to happen.
0: Speaking of this, can I file for a first shot? Um, would you like to tell us a little more about the two men in question and about the almost wonderful Mrs. Miles, whom I think had a certificate whereby she could, uh, for the Ministry, certify the airworthiness of an aircraft from a structural point of view. Is that not so? Oh, yes. Uh, Mrs. Miles,
1: uh, perhaps I haven't really done her justice, because, of course, uh, as is normal in life, the woman is the driving force behind the mere man and that was very true in the case of Mrs. Miles she joined us in the very early days just as an ordinary member of the club she came over and learnt to fly and uh, proved to be a very competent pilot indeed she couldn't take a pilot's licence because in an accident in childhood she had lost one of her eyes and therefore she couldn't qualify as a, uh, for a licence but she was a perfectly competent, extremely competent pilot she took a very active path throughout all our early days uh in the days when we were in the saw two men and a boy on the stage plus one woman uh she did an enormous amount of the drawings and the calculations and uh right throughout uh the various vicissitudes of the firm, she was very very much the for she was a tireless thing for us she was a very remarkable woman and still is <laughs> that's a good one. Dare I tell you the truth? You see, when in the old days, I think now it's 20 years later, we can we can tell the truth. But in the old days, and people used to ask us that, we used to answer somewhat vaguely that it confer, confer, uh, conferred certain aerodynamic advantages and left it at that. The real reason was, the master was drawn out, originally with a straight wing, not with a gull wing, and the chap who did the drawing omitted... To draw in the propeller. And um, at too late a stage to draw back, it was then found when you put the propeller on, it would go about a foot into the ground. The only way to get over that was to make the wing like <laughs> right there to bring... <laughs> Now, that is something uh, which has never been published. How
0: about your remarks about the tail first aircraft <laughs> So seldom that one hears about these, and certainly, uh, he will confess on that one found the one who's apart from yourself, Tommy Rose, that's I Um, I wonder if you describe something more about the ending? it? Yes, Norman.
1: Uh, yes, indeed, uh, uh again, uh, I'll be honest, in February... Uh, some of the things which haven't been published uh, first of all it wasn't the tail first aeroplane it was a tandem wing aeroplane it, it, I, I'm not trying to quibble with words the tail first aeroplane is really like an orthodox aeroplane with a tail uh, ahead instead of behind the wing in other words the lift uh, being provided by the wing and the tail being a stabilizing surface in the case of the Libellula, which is what we call that and the reason we, we used the word Libellula was because we couldn't call it dragonfly because that uh, n- the name had already been used by the heavens, and Liberlil is the French for dragonfly, and the dragonfly, as you know, is a tandem-wing aircraft. But anyway, this
0: is a genuine tandem
1: wing in that both wings were lifting surfaces. The front wing uh, carried 40% of the all-up weight. So it wasn't just a straight-tail first airplane, it was a genuine tandem-wing airplane. Um, uh, you talked about Tommy Rose flying it. Um, well, he didn't, in point of fact. He was our chief test pilot. And when we eventually uh brought this monstrosity out into the open, he took one look at it and said, ''You surely don't expect me to fly that, do you?'' And we said, ''Well, yes, chum, we do.'' Uh, and he said, ''But uh, it may not fly.'' And we said, ''Well, that is for you to find out.'' <laughs> and he said, ''Well, I'll probably go to break my neck in it.'' And we said, ''Well, that's what you're paying to do, old boy, isn't it? That's your job.'' <laughs> And he dug his heels in well and fun in just a few... St- right, so uh, the actual first flight was done by George Miles himself. We had a terrific argument about it, because um, George Miles said, look, it was my idea in the first case, I'm obviously the one to take the risk. I said, no, wait a minute, uh, all the worthwhile ideas, I admitted as you who suggested a tender wing aeroplane, but the real design has been done by me, and therefore I think that I should be the one to do it. Well, we had a terrific argument, and in the end, George Miles was forced to point out that he was technical director, and I was a mere employee, so he won and did the first flight. Now, as God's handling characteristics stall, in particular, I'm so glad you mentioned that, because uh, that's a very worthwhile feature, in that the wing loading on the two wings was different. The wing loading on the front wing was higher than the wing loading on the rear wing, and consequently the front wing always stalled first, and the rear wing never stalled. The result was you couldn't get a, a wing drop of the stall, you always had just a perfectly straight stall and just a straight dropping of the nose and you couldn't drop a wing because the rear wing was still flying. As regards handling characteristics, the first thing that comes to my mind, I remember, on my first flight, and it was, uh, as it was a one-off, the search error thing just built by ourselves, we thought, this time be really clever and cut structure weight to the bare minimum. Let's see if we can do, have the uh, structure weight, a lower percentage of the all-up weight, than anybody has ever achieved. And, of course, we we were too clever we carried this too far and the result was at the time of its first one or two flights it was structurally weak it's the only time I've ever flown an aeroplane that was structurally weak just after take off just climbing away and it hit a small degree of turbulence and the whole nose all went like that with, the back, with everything behind you remained quite firm and as you were perched in the nose it wasn't at all a pleasant feeling so the uh, uh, aircraft was hardly put back into dark and stiffened we had just tried to be a bit too clever uh, and the characteristics were very normal. They didn't have any unpleasant, uh, vices. There was one rather untoward incident. ...which happened uh, in the course of the development of flying... Uh, ...we were doing... Uh, ...one of the objects of this tandem wing business... ...particularly in the bomber version... ...was to have a very wide range of CG movement... ...because as you know in the orthodox aeroplane... ...your permissible range of CG is very limited indeed... Whereas we had two wings in tandem... ...well you can have these or CG roughly anywhere you like... ...between the two wings... ...and we were doing a series of tests... ...loading it to CG further and further and further off... ...to determine what was the feasible range of CG... Of course, the front limit was... Uh, fixed by the fact that when you had to stick hard back and you would touch down on the front wheel alone, so that fixed the forwardness of the CG. Now, we were then doing a series of tests, gradually moving it further and further and further aft. And, uh, um Ken Waller, who was then our chief test pilot, he had succeeded Tommy Rose, who had then retired, he was doing these tests day by day, each day it was ballasted to bring the CG a bit further back and a bit further back. And there came a day when Ken happened to be, uh, have a day's leave or be sick or something. Now, I was suddenly asked if I would do just a perfectly straight routine flight on that particular day. So I duly really got in, and while I was sort of putting on the harness and so on, I was vaguely aware out of the corner of my eye various people sort of working around the aeroplane. I didn't quite know what they were doing, I wasn't looking at them really, but anyway, a few moments later, started up, took off, did the flight, and it was all perfectly successful. Came down and landed, and as you will remember from the photograph, the front, of the cockpit, it was only a single seat cockpit, it was over the top of the front wing. So I duly opened a canopy, stepped out onto the wing, and then jumped off the wing down onto the ground. And as I jumped off the wing down onto the ground, the airplane did this. <laughs> And there's various people working around the airplane, which I had failed to observe what they were doing. I hadn't observed that they had the airplane tied down to some stakes in the ground before I got in. They'd got the CG so far off after, it was after the rear undercarriage, you see, and I was supposed to remain on board until they'd got it tied down again. And well, nobody told me that, and I got grumbled there for being a crot and getting out of the airplane before they had tied it down. I must say it was a bit of a shock when a thing suddenly sat up and begged. But uh, anyway, coming back to uh, handling characteristics and so on, performance, and uh, I did a lot of work on that aeroplane. Performance-wise, it was just about comfortable with or what would have been a comfortable orthodox aeroplane. In other words, it was neither particularly fast nor slower than an orthodox aeroplane. I think I'm right in saying that. The CG range, of course, was very much more than in in an orthodox aeroplane. But from the pilot's point of view, handling-wise, it was um, very normal, really. Oh, I should just add, uh, uh, to complete the story, to be completely honest again, this is again one of the things we didn't publish, but I think we can afford to now, 20 years later. The first prototype, the little single-engine one, was catastrophically unstable. Uh, George Miles, as I told you, did the first flight in that, and when he, I noticed that he saw only just cleared the hedge by about five feet. He did a very low and hurried circuit, you know, keeping you know, about ten feet off the ground, came in and landed very pale about the gills. And so I dashed out and said, can I fly it now? And he said, well, I shouldn't devour you. <laughs> um, but we did learn quite a lot from that. And what we learned from that first prototype, which was catastrophically unstable, we did incorporate in the second prototype. So I always told George that the first was his design, the second was mine.
0: Flectus.
1: Um, were corridors on the map, No, the... Um Else in which I showed in the pictures of those very large called full-span thefts, that was a starry hawk which was, again, developed from the old original hawk. It was a single-seat version which we flew in the 1935 King's Cup. And incidentally, just a matter of interest, I didn't have time to mention that when I was giving the talk, that first prototype sparrow-hawk was, after the war, fitted with a couple of little small French jet engines and became the sparrow-jet. And that, I think I'm right in saying, was the first privately owned jet in the world,
0: and it was also the winner of the King's Cup,
1: this day. But uh, anyway, coming back to your question about these flap experiments, uh, the initial ones were done on the Sparrowhawk, and that is what I showed in the picture. We did do other ones on the witness straight. We had a multi-slotted flap on the witness straight. We've got some quite interesting results. We also did uh, some on one or two falcons. Then of course there was that other picture I showed of that aeroplane which we fitted a wing onto an existing fuselage. The one I was saying was we used the tests for this design which was produced for naval airplane by supermarines. Marines. That uh, was an M eighteen, which was the Magister as so you probably know.
0: I came in the library and I was told he was probably the last man who could design, build, and fly an aircraft. Sorry the old organization was it was almost
1: entirely of people who designed built that. Yes, yes, that was, that was always the policy policy of the firm. And also, it was always very much the policy of the Havillons, of course. The Havillons family, father and sons were all pilots. So it had always been very much uh, our policy, quite deliberately, right from the start, and we kept it up right up to the end. It was always our policy to fly our own air things
0: other airplane you sold is uh, well and I think you got the hobby which was stuck in the, of the tunnel uh,
1: yes, there's no well, I've got to be honest, that was one, one of our not-successes. That was a little single-seat racing aeroplane that we built for the 1937 King's Cup. Uh, as in all King's Cup races, it was always our tradition that the aeroplane was finished on the starting line, more or less, and this was no exception to the rule. And in fact, the night before the race, when the aeroplane ha- still hadn't flown, uh, it uh, it was in a hangar and it was just about complete and we jacked it up to make sure that the wheels were attracted into the holes left from in the wing and, uh, we discovered that they didn't. And believe it or not, a new wing was built throughout that night and fitted and the aeroplane was subsequently flown. It was not a good aeroplane. It was not one of our successes. And, uh, we consider ourselves fortunate in being able to sell it to our uh, good friends of course because we needed the money heaven knows and uh, they, they, we sold it to them on the pretext that it was such a small aeroplane that it could be fitted inside their wind tunnel and no existing other aeroplanes would go actually inside their wind tunnel and we managed to sell it to them on that pretext and as on so many other occasions they were very much our benefactors whether they got any benefit from it I wouldn't know but at least they took off our hands at something more than cost price an unsuccessful
0: aeroplane well, gentlemen, time's getting on. One more question. Anyone else like to put up another question? Well, if not, I think I might make one remark. Our lecturer has spoken several times of the great friendliness of the RAE. I saw this man on the side, and I would agree very much with him. the Wood, in particular, was very enthusiastic about the Miles firm because they not only built quickly, but they they built as required, and they had it up to the contract date. And what more the more they were cheap. But as regards the ministry, I really believe the ministry did not like your firm. They did not. <laughs> well, I go to thank our lecture in the usual way. We've not only had a very interesting lecture, but a very enjoyable one. Thank you very much, sir.
1: thank all of you for coming along and hearing me it's a real joy to see so many old friends of mine in the audience it really is it's absolutely terrific I had no idea that half of you were going to be here it really is an absolute joy to have talked to you and I only hope that it hasn't bored you regardless of what you said so us now uh, McKinnon Wood I did for a short period of my career have the great pleasure of working under him on his staff he was a real enthusiast and you're absolutely right in what you say that our uh, dislike of the ministry was reciprocated <laughs> thank you